At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Uber reporting its first ever operating profit. CEO Dara Khosrowshahi on this big day. Everything came together this quarter. The team executed really well, and we plan to be profitable for every quarter going forward. Uber investors are keeping the faith, and there's a move to prove it. The stock price is now reflecting a view from investors, which we've had all along, which is this can be a scale platform on the internet that can be very, very profitable. And hate speech online. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt is giving social media platforms C's, D's, and an F for combating harassment. Keep you users safe from hate. Knock the Nazis off your platform. That shouldn't be so hard. Plus July's remarkable market and one big, bright, contentious X in San Francisco goes dark. Permit fees are worth the marketing that they got, the free marketing with all us talking about this. It's Tuesday, August 1st, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Mike Santoli. Joe is off today. It's the first trading day of August. And let's see where things stand. If you want to take a look at the U.S. equity futures at this hour, right now there are some red arrows. Dow futures down by almost 100 points. S&P futures down by 12. The NASDAQ down by about 49 Yeah, but that is after a pretty impressive July that stacks up to an unbelievable year to date so far. The Dow and the S&P 500 each up more than 3%. In fact, the NASDAQ was up by just over 4% for the month. So an incredible month where you saw stocks continue to climb. But add that to what we've already seen year to date. Okay, Dow up 7.3%, maybe not as impressive. But the S&P 500 up by 19.5% and the NASDAQ up a whopping 37%. Let's put that into a little bit of historic context. Over the year to date, you were talking about the NASDAQ having its best first seven months since all the way back to 1975. At that that time, the Dow was up by 39.1%, actually held on to a lot of those gains, gave some back in the second part of the year, down by about, uh, it was still up by about 30% by the end of the year. But if you're looking at the S&P 500, also incredibly impressive, up 19.5%. That's the best performance it's seen since the beginning of 1997. At that year, Dow was, or the S&P was up by 28.8%. It actually ended the year up 31%. So adding to gains, Mike, throughout some of those things. How, how do you look at this and kind of look back at what we see? Yeah, the, the, the pattern in, in history is that markets that are consistently strong, we've had five straight up months in the S&P 500, that, that actually only happens in the context of generally continuing uptrends, right? So usually it's not a fluke that you get five straight months. Now, that being said, it's happened eight times in the last decade. It's only happened 40% of the time since 1949. So the point is that we have a streakier market. I think monthly returns are more important. You mentioned the Dow's down 100 points. It was up 100 points in like the last minute of trading yesterday. (laughs) So there's a lot 
of stuff that mechanically gets done around month end. I think in, in general, the market has answered most of the criticism. You mentioned it's unbelievable returns yeah. year to date. And I guess that's And why I think that's the point. That's exactly Because why. to many people, it is unbelievable. The NASDAQ 100 is up 50% from its intraday low in October. You have the S&P up uh, 31% from its low in October. So even if you look at these, the history of, oh, we had a non-recession bear market, right? That's kind of what it looks like right now. Um, the history is the next year you get a 30% gain in the S&P. You know, that's at the upside. We have already gotten it. So, so that, I think it makes some more. The economy is better than expected. Earnings have been better than expected as yes. a result. And you've had government intervention that, that has Without kind of played with all of Inflation things. has come down faster than the economy has weakened. I think that's the big picture story on what's happened. And over the course of the last couple of months, the strength of the market's broadened out. So therefore, it's no longer just a, a handful of stocks driving things. All that being said, I think valuations are now looking a little bit on the rich side. Uh, from six months ago, the expected S&P 500 earnings over the coming 12 months hasn't really changed a lot. <laughs> it's actually dipped and come back a little bit. The point is, people are just more confident that those earnings are going to come through. Where, where are we on forward earnings at this point? Is it 30 or something? Uh, in terms of the, the multiple? Yeah, for on, on the NASDAQ, it's like 26. On the S&P, it's 19.7. Okay. So it's expensive, but it's not historically uh, completely out of the realm. Uh, and again, it's all about next year's results. So next year, we're still looking at an 8% gain uh, by consensus in S&P earnings. We'll see if we, uh, we have that come through. What is interesting is the psychological effect of it, which is people saying, I'm not going to fight it anymore. Right. So you're seeing strategists raising their targets. You have Oppenheimer today saying we can get to 4,900 by the end of the year. Mike that would Wilson basically be his tune Mike Wilson too. sort of capitulated. That, I was going to say, is this capitulation? Is this what you would read, or I think is it it's, not it's, quite it's as capitulation on the upside? It is, <laughs> and it's part of the Which process. Sometimes can be a mistake, though, on the up. Eventually, I, th I do think eventually, if it feeds into overconfidence, right now it seems like part of the process because bull markets need bulls to keep going. Um, we'll see. Again, I think it's 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 a uh, it's a more even trade now to say from here, from this point on, uh, I think a lot of people are on board with the soft landing scenario. A yeah. lot of people are on board with the idea that this is a bull market. So you no longer have that skepticism to kind of burn off and get, get to higher prices. But there has been a lot of money on the sidelines that yeah. has moved in, especially lately. And it can continue. Yeah, we'll see. Let's talk about uh, the new X sign. We were talking about it yesterday on the headquarters of the company formerly known as Twitter. Uh, that sign now officially taken down in San Francisco. It had drawn criticism from neighbors and city officials, including 24 complaints with the city's Department of Building Inspections. Among the complaints, the flashing lights made it hard for nearby residents to sleep. <laughs> I could I see that if I was across the street and that sign was put up without a permit. A city spokesman saying the property owner would be assessed fees for installing it and removing it without permits. I said there was sort of a Bruce Wayne like yeah. Uh, the bat call. The bat call, the X call, and it was sort of very cool from a marketing perspective. He clearly looked like he must have had also a drone fly by it so he could get a nice shot that was then used on Twitter. Well, we've now talked X. about it for two days in a row, so yeah. it's probably it's worth. worth the marketing money. Exactly. That, that, yeah. You mean, you mean it's, worth the, it's, it's, it's worth, worth the permit the, fees? The, that, the permit uh, fees are worth the marketing that they got, the free right. marketing with all yeah. us talking about this stuff. And he's and, and so at this point, it's a kind of, OK, fine, we'll take it down. It's a voluntary yeah. thing. It's not really a. Yeah. yeah but interesting, it came worth. just a couple of days after he said, OK, we're staying in San Francisco, despite right. the That's fact right. I think it's yeah. in a death spiral. We're going to stay here anyway. We love you. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was fascinating because he's been very outspoken about California specifically and San Francisco even more particularly. And we saw this even during COVID, just how much he was unhappy and oh, yeah. kept saying, you know, I'm going to move more and more of my 
operations to Texas. I would have actually thought, frankly, that he was eventually going to move X to Texas just to consolidate and be yeah. in one place. And, and not he still, travel. Well, he still has Fremont. Uh, so mm-hmm. there is going to be, you always have some travel, but yeah, I thought that if you're trying, if you are trying to have your house physically living where you're next door, which is what he has going on in Austin to, uh, to SpaceX and to and Tesla. Tesla. Yeah, sure. Faber made an interesting point yesterday. He was just talking about how Elon, every time he sets foot in California, it's millions of dollars a day for him and he's paying yeah. in taxes. So he Income watches taxes. it very closely and tries to get out by midnight. You know, the, people do that in New York City, exactly, too. Yeah. <laughs> it's the same sort of setup. Right. There's, people like, track how many days you here. have to spend. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't, you don't pay per day. You only pay after a certain... I, I think it's like, it's, like, it's like New York, which is 183 days. Right. So I think he wants to just keep and, it under And that. I think he's yeah. trying to stay under the, under the number, right? Yeah. Presumably. Which I would, too, if it were millions of dollars a day. Yeah. There's no place I want to be... That I would no, it would only cost, but it's only costing him millions of dollars a day if he's over the if he's over That's the, right. it's over the Potentially, it would, right. it, would, yeah. it would kick him to the next threshold. Right. Yeah. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Andrew heads to Uber HQ. The platform has finally had its first profitable quarter. CEO Darakaz Rashahi on how he's building something indispensable for consumers. My Twitter just turned into X, uh, <laughs> and Elon would like to do a super app, too. Well, we're not going to rename the company anytime soon, but what we're focused on getting people places or getting things to them. We'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Mike Santoli. Andrew has made his way to Uber headquarters and he's got much more on Uber's quarterly results. Andrew, take it away. We're down at Uber's headquarters where Uber is reporting quarterly results. The ride sharing company achieving its first ever gap operating profit in the company's history. Uh, it's a milestone for the company. Yeah, and uh, the stock... Uh Ticking higher even after the stock a strong run. Yeah. On the move. It's been on a strong run, by the way. It has. You know, just if you go back even the last six months, it, it's been on quite a move, I think, in, in anticipation uh, of, uh, of, of this day of sorts. But we've yeah. got to see where this all goes next. Uber generated the $1.1 billion of free cash flow during the quarter. And joining us right now is the company's CEO, Darakaz Rashahi, the CEO of Uber. It's great to see you. And it is a milestone. I was actually thinking about this when we sat together. When you took over, by the way, I was looking, bookings were $14 billion, mm-hmm. $33 billion right now. And when we were sitting together, 
EBITDA was off, I mean, negative $869 million. Free cash flow was negative $877 million. And so today uh, is quite something for you. It's, it's a great day. Um, it's the amalgamation of a ton of work of everyone on the Uber team. And obviously the drivers and couriers were on the platform, but the performance is there, right? We've got gross bookings over $33 billion, up 18% year on year. Uh, EBITDA record $916 million, up over 50% year on year. Free cash flow of $1.1 billion. And our first profitable quarter, $394 million. You said this was going to happen this year. Yes. Did you think it would happen? I mean, and I remember trying to, trying to get you to say when, when in the year. <laughs> Um, did, did you think, did you know this, that you were on track at this point? We thought that we would be on track either in Q2 or Q3. We tend to under-promise and over-deliver. Uh, and everything came together this quarter. The team executed really well, and we plan to be profitable for, right. you know, every quarter going forward. Um, I don't know if you can see the stock. The stock up is now up about 4 almost 5%. At one point, it, it clicked up over 6%. But really, you look back even towards May, and it is now a straight line up. Uh, how do you think about the company's valuation in this context? Well, what I can control is what we're doing operationally, the service that we are offering to our consumers. And the service keeps getting better. Our audience grows, grew by 12% on a year-on-year basis. The frequency of use... Uh, buyer actives grew 9% on a year-on-year basis. You combine that with cost discipline, you get free cash flow over a billion dollars a quarter. The stock price will take care of itself, and I think the stock price is now reflecting a view from investors, which we've had all along, which is this can be a scale platform on the internet that can be very, very profitable. And because we have mobility delivery all on one platform, We've got a competitive advantage well, let's over ta- let's the talk other about players. What, let's just talk about what that is, though, because mm-hmm. we, so we went through Uber 1.0, which was probably the, the Travis Kalanick version sure. of it. Yeah. Um, I think we might, you might have just completed 2.0 of sorts. I don't, I don't know if you can take a victory lap on that front just yet. We're but, not ready for victory okay, laps, but, but we come a long way. But what, and, and that was, uh, let's be honest, I mean, that was almost a daily knife fight for you in terms of trying to get through it all. What is... To the extent you now are a platform, a profitable one, what, what does the 3.0 version look like? Well, I think the 3.0 version for Uber looks like essentially are connecting every single vehicle and driver who is available to take you any place in your local city. And to some extent, what that translates to is you're an operating system for everyday life in a city, right? When you combine that with ML and AI, we essentially machine are there for you, machine, machine learning, artificial intelligence. We essentially are there for you. Any place you want to go, anything you want to get delivered to your home, as we get to know you more and more, we become more of a utility and more of you know, a service that you can't do without. How concerned are you about what's going on with your competitor, Lyft? They've obviously been challenged in part because of your own success, but it very well may be, and I, I will see, whether they need to get into a pricing fight with you all over again. Well, Andrew, I don't spend too much time worrying about Lyft, so to speak, Uh, but we don't see any evidence of a pricing fight at this point. Lyft was not price competitive with us a year ago. They are price competitive with us now, and now we can focus on competing based on brand, based on service, based on innovation, and with products like UberX Share and Reserve uh, and our U4B for Enterprise, we think we can out innovate. But you don't think as the they try to capture share 
and as you said, now they're mm-hmm. price competitive, mm-hmm. that they are going to make it a lot more challenging. I think that the era of, of pricing, of fighting purely based on price is over, right? That was three, four years ago when it was just about volume, but investors now want profitable volume. And if the only thing you have to offer is a lower price, you're not offering much ultimately. You've got to offer brand and service, and all the evidence that we see as far as Lyft goes and our other competitors are they're trying to compete in the right way. We think in that world we have an advantage. We've got scale. What do you tell customers and maybe policymakers about this, though? You came into lots of cities across the country Mm -hmm. at at, at, at very low competitive prices. Talk about this. Talk about pricing. Yes. In some cases... Uh, were so successful in that realm that you put a lot of folks either out of business or, or shifted the business, became the successful one, and now the price has gone up. Well, the price has up, gone up along with inflation everywhere, right? And when you look at the prices going up, a significant portion of that price is being passed on to actually drivers. So, for example, drivers, couriers earn over $15 billion, including tips on our platform. That was up 19% which is up faster than overall gross bookings growth that was up 18%. So the increase in pricing is really going, uh, the vast majority of that is going to drivers and couriers, and we think that's fair. Um, That's happening uh, in a very positive direction when it comes to mobility, meaning people in the cars, Mm -hmm. and delivery. Mm -hmm. Less so in the freight space. That that has remained a a challenging spot for you. It has. It has. Because uh, when you look at the consumer and what the consumer is spending on, the consumer continues to spend increasingly on services. If you look pre-pandemic, spend on services was about 69% of of spend. It's still only 67% of spend. So more money is going towards, towards services, which benefits our mobility delivery business. Freight, to some extent, is a hedge there. Freight is grows when people ship stuff, when they buy stuff. This year, people are buying more services. Our freight business is down. We're adjusting costs. But our mobility and delivery businesses are growing growing at huge rates and larger than ever. If we were sitting together, call it three years from now, Mm -hmm. and we had a pie chart, mobility, delivery, freight. I don't even put advertising in there as the other. Uh, Absolutely. Okay. How does, how does that pie chart look? Well, first of all, the pie, the whole pie is much larger, okay. right? Uh, but I think all of the pieces of the business are going to grow at significant rates in the teens or the 20s. Advertising is going to be the biggest growth area for us because we have a huge audience, over 130 million uh, audience coming at us on a monthly basis onto the platform. This is a high-end audience. They're very engaged with our platform. They're going places. And what we're seeing in advertising is $650 million now of run rate revenue growing very significantly, and we're well on our way to a billion-plus next year. So when you talk about being a super app, what does that look like relative to I, my, my Twitter just turned into X, uh, <laughs> and Elon would like to do a super app too? Well, we're not going to rename the company anytime soon, but what we're focused on getting people places or getting things to them. So we are in the real-world, real-time physical movement of, of goods right. and services. I think Twitter is a different uh, animal. Uh, and again, not someone I bet against. Um, what do you do about surcharges uh, on for traffic? One of the mm-hmm. things we're mm-hmm. seeing in New York City is this proposal under 60th Street cost you 23 bucks yeah. uh, to get in and what that will do to either your drivers or traffic or the, the broader business. 
Generally, we support congestion pricing in cities to alleviate uh, traffic, et cetera, get the vehicles that have the most utility into the most crowded parts of the, of the city. Because so you'll pay we, once. We'll pay once generally. Now, it's proving out to be a real challenge in New, York, in New York City to figure out how to make it fair to all the constituencies, and it's important to be a part right. of that dialogue. Do you think it's good for these cities? Congestion pricing. I mean, one of the big issues is, especially as cities have been challenged over the past yeah. couple of years, you know, just having people in the city is a good thing. It definitely is. I mean, the fact that people are coming back to cities and coming back to New York is terrific. If you think about supply-demand characteristics, um, there is too much demand for transportation in cities, and therefore congestion pricing makes some sense. How you put that in to make it fair and equitable to everyone is a tough, right. tough problem to solve. Uh, your headquarters is in San Francisco. Elon Musk was uh, on Twitter uh, over the weekend saying, it's like a doomed city, but we're staying. Are you staying? Yes, we are. D and do you have views on, is it a doomed city? Uh, things are tough there. And right now, there are feedback loops, you know, sometimes that are negative and, pos and positive. San Francisco is going through a negative feedback loop now but never bet against innovation in that city. I think uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, the excitement there should bring people back, and we're going to be there. Talking about innovation uh, and AI in particular, you made a deal with Waymo yes. uh, for uh, self-driving vehicles. This is You've been talking about self-driving vehicles for a very long time. You had your own self-driving business yes, uh, for a period of time. What's your sense of, of, of how that scales, what happens, and, and really get to that existential question about, you know, who the driver ultimately is going to be? Well, ultimately, if you step back for Uber, we just want to wire up every single car and driver who is safe and provides a good service, whether that's a human driver or a robot driver. Okay, the robot drivers have a long way to go to, one, be as safe as humans and provide the kind of fulsome service that humans can. And... I know that there's always the drama, are robots going to replace people, et cetera. Ultimately, what we've seen over and over again is that robots complement humans. And our deal with Waymo is about mixing in Waymo right. into essentially the Uber network and providing a better service for you, right. you know, five, ten years from now. Maybe better for the customer, but you've also, you're a two-sided marketplace. Yes, we are. And you've spent a lot of time trying to attract drivers and saying, look, this is the place that you should be driving on. What kind of feedback are you getting from drivers who might be saying to themselves, I don't really know if they're with me or not. They might be with the robots. Well, I think what we're communicating to drivers very, very clearly are that we are squarely in their camp. Uh, we've we have improved customer service significantly with drivers. The onboarding experience is better. We've got six million couriers and drivers on our platform. Earnings are incredibly strong. The driver average driver on the platform is spending more time on the platform, up 7% year on year, and retention is up as well. So drivers are voting with their feet and with their cars, and right now they're voting positively. Um, a fascinating court decision a week ago with self-driving cars. There was that, uh, that very, very tragic incident yes. uh, with a self-driving car with a Uber backup driver. Yes. Um, and there was a real question about who is responsible, the person or the robot? And in this case, it really is the person. Um, but that's because there was a backup driver in the vehicle. How do you think that changes if there is no backup driver? Well, I think that all of this uh, shows just how important safety is in developing these technologies that have impact on the real world and can, and can affect lives. Right. 
and for us, we're very much focused on our platform, saving lives, preventing drunk driving, et cetera. I think it just shows how careful you have to be here in right. developing this technology. You've got to take your time. And I think self-driving is going to take some time. Okay, we got to go. But I, news you can use about the stars, the ratings. I just discovered you will now actually show people not just your star rating, but actually how many five stars you got, how many four stars you got. I mean, it doesn't show you that the, which driver gave yes, you what. Yes, we don't want to give you the personal. But you're now, you've now put it out there for folks. We just want to give you more information so you learn maybe a little bit more about yourself, Andrew. How are uh, you doing? You know, I, Are you I, I've had about, five star or four I've had star? about 1,600 drives. You're and a great I, customer. Thank you. And uh, I've gotten about 500 five stars, so I'm proud of that. But nice. as you go down the, yeah, as the four stars, and the th- it's, it's interesting. And, and then you start to think, which was the drive that, that cost you the, the lower, well, lower well, star remember, rating? remember, New Yorkers generally are tougher in judging each other. You know, there's this New York attitude. We've got edge, et cetera. Making, making me feel I'm just better trying to make myself. you feel a little bit better. Yeah. Dar, congratulations on a great quarter. Uh, Thank you very much. See you. Thanks. Appreciate it. Still to come, how social media platforms measure up when it comes to keeping users safe from hate. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt ranks each virtual town square. Facebook gets a C minus. X, Twitter, gets a C minus. Discord, which is really just a rancid place, gets a D. And again, Snap gets an F. But Twitch did well. YouTube scored a C. Insta scored a C. TikTok scored a C. Squawk Pod, we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today with Becky Quick. Andrew Roth Sorkin and Mike Santoli. Here's Andrew. Up and Andrew, Hugh. Welcome back to Squawk Box. A new report uh, from the Anti Defamation League giving poor grades to social media platforms when it comes to supporting targets of online hate and harassment. The grades run the gamut from a B for Twitch and a C for Instagram to an F for Snapchat. Joining us right now, Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO and director of, uh, national director of the Anti Defamation League. Good morning to you. Uh, you're, you're the teacher in this. Uh, in this case, right. go through the grades, but maybe even before you do the grades, how you, how you came to them? How are you measuring these companies? So, look, the ADL's been tracking hate you know, for over 100 years, and now we see social media has really become the super spreader of hate and harassment. We do annual polls, and we found that this year, more than 52% of Americans report receiving abuse being harassed on these platforms. I mean, that's over half of their adult users in America. So those numbers are astounding. And actually, four out of five people who've seen violent threats directed at them receive no feedback, no support from the platforms at all. Why don't people stay on these platforms if it's nothing? I think these platforms have become so integrated into our lives, right? It's how we shop. It's how we socialize. It's how we search for information. And yet, again, they are vectors of abuse. And these are some of the most sophisticated, profitable companies 
in the world. I mean, think about Snapchat. It's got an $18 billion market cap, doing amazing things with, you know, half a billion users, and yet we give it an F because you can't get real-time support if you're harassed. You can't batch report if you've experienced, you know, hate. Simple things they could do. I, I want to dig into what hate represents because I think it's a question. Sure. Uh, but this is Linda Yaccarino, the new CEO of X, formerly yeah. Twitter, just eight hours ago, posting the following. She says, free expression and platform safety are not at odds. Is that true? Is well, that possible? It's, uh, that certainly seems to contradict what we're seeing on almost all of these services. Now look, they announced their reorg at X yesterday, and now Linda is in charge of trust and safety. That's a good thing, because she understood how to handle these issues, I believe, at NBC Universal. But the truth is, is that what we're seeing on Twitter, X, today is really alarming. But let's just define hate. When you talk about hate, I imagine there are folks uh, who, if they were uh, filling out a survey would say they feel like they've received hate online. By mm -hmm. the way, I unfortunately feel like I receive hate every hour. Yeah, I'm receiving online. it right now as I. But I would not. And 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 look, I actually read it and try to uh, be as introspective as I can and say maybe I got to do this or that or whatever. And sometimes they're crazy and sometimes it's real. Right. But that kind of hate is different, I think, than some of the true hate and hate crimes, effectively, that take place on social media. So how, how do you differentiate between that? Well, look, we've certainly seen where rhetoric online creates world, real world consequences offline, Andrew, right? So we've seen a connection. But how do I define it? Look, these platforms need to center the user's experience. So we talked to a Holocaust survivor who told us how she regularly gets messages like, how did you enjoy the showers? Now, I understand that how do you enjoy the showers if you're walking out of a locker room may, may be benign, but directed at a right. Holocaust survivor, that's absolutely a kind of hate that no platform should tolerate. You gave the highest grade to Twitch? Yeah. Let's, most people don't even think about Twitch in, in sort of sure. the classic social media land. Twitch, of course, owned by Amazon. Correct. But take us farther down the chain. So where does Facebook land? Facebook gets a C minus. X, Twitter, gets a C minus. Discord, which is really just a rancid place, gets a D, and again, Snap gets an F. But Twitch did well, YouTube scored a C, Insta scored a C, TikTok scored a C. So there's a range. And was that a function, do you think, of safety teams that you think are doing a better job on those platforms? Do yeah. you think it's really about the type of person and the community and the kind of language that is considered acceptable on certain platforms? I mean, it nope. seems to me, even, even as, you know, Instagram was starting threads, for example, it seemed like that was a happier, uh, less hateful place, at least at the beginning of the party. We'll see how the party <laughs> progresses. We'll see. But, but you see what I'm saying? Meaning, Absolutely. is it about the community and the way they've sort of created an environment, or is it about the technology of, of effectively, and some people call it censoring, yeah. and, and removing either people from the platform or posts from the platform. I don't think applying editorial standards and basic rules of the road is censorship. So, you know, I don't agree with that in general. But more specifically, it's about the platform and the values that they drive. So LinkedIn is a place where we don't see any of this kind of abuse. Right. Whereas, again, on Discord, which is filled with right-wing extremists and all kinds of uh, hateful people. It's, it's a different, different issue, um, but given the amount of thought you've given to this, yeah. 
What did you think about the report just last week? Um, I mean, the uh, Twitter files are one thing, but there's this, you know, the, the Facebook files that emerged around yeah. the White House's influence yeah. over, over COVID information during the pandemic, yeah. the pressure that was brought to bear uh, against Facebook executives, the ruling in Florida by the judge who effectively said that this administration should not be yeah. in communication about uh, some of these yeah. things. You agree with that? You disagree with that? So I do not agree with that. Look, I think if we looked at what happened during COVID, let's acknowledge that public health officials, you know, companies, civil society, we were all struggling to make sense of this moment. And no one really had their act together and understood what was behind the virus. How did we stop its transmission, et cetera? So I think government trying to work with the companies to be responsible and get the right information out to the public I don't think right. that's necessarily so. Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate because I actually happen to agree with you. But there yeah. is an argument to be made that it's coercive, that when a government official calls you uh, at a tech company that when you that they regulate, regulate you, when right. someone can regulate you and they ask you to do something, it's different. It's like the chairman of an oversight committee calling you when you're the bank they oversee and saying, yeah. give me money for my finance campaign. Look, it's a fair question. Like in a free society, I think we have to assume some modicum of trust for the public servants and the, you know, the democracy in which we live. <laughs> Nobody rates lower than journalists except for publicly elected <laughs> officials when the, it comes to trust. Yeah, authors. look, these are complicated issues, but I give them the benefit of the doubt and think that they're trying to do their best. I mean, as someone who formerly worked in government, I understand the conflict, but I think we've got to recognize these decisions are made in real time. They're not. But there's got to be a better way to do it. You can't like have it done behind closed doors where companies feel like they absolutely have to bow to pressure. And look, I, I think there were mistakes that were made during some of the things that happened during COVID. But yeah, I think all what's of the us way to do it? If you're not going to say you can't ever call, what's the way to do it? Should there be sunshine laws that say, okay, anytime you call, we're yeah. going to put out publicly what you requested us to take down? I hear you. There was a Gizmodo report recently that suggested that since the management change at Twitter last fall, that they've complied with 80% of the government requests to pull down information from around the world. Mm -hmm. And we remember what happened in Turkey when Elon was asked to sure. pull things down. So yeah, I'm acknowledging these things aren't easy. These CEOs want market access, and then they're pushed by governments with whom we don't agree on their basic values. At the same time, what we're talking about at ADL is keep you users safe from hate. Knock the Nazis off your platform. That shouldn't be so hard. Are you surprised that they let me, let, me, let me, from a technological perspective, sure. One of the things that a lot of the leaders of these companies say is, you know, we are trying as hard as we can to yeah. take this stuff down as quickly as we can. That you know, users are clever; they'll write things in certain ways. Yeah. We haven't coded it in every way. The second we figure out how it's coded, we jump in and actually, and we do deal with it. Right. Do you think that they are disingenuous? in what they're saying about how they approach these issues? I don't know if I would characterize it disingenuous, but I would say if your product is broken, it's up to you to fix it. So beverage companies don't get to say that, yet yeah, 99 out of 100 products are safe, so we think we're doing pretty good. Right, but the conundrum is that the customer, in the social media landscape, the customer is almost making the product. Yeah. 
That's, right? And so right. controlling every customer's interaction with the product is, a, is, is where, a bit of a different issue. This is where I come back and I agree with Jonathan on this. Yeah. You're a profitable company. Figure the, it out. These <laughs> are innovative, profitable companies that can micro-target the ads to you in ways that we've never seen in the history of capitalism. So you just don't think that they've spent the money. I don't think they've prioritized the it. And the priority to do They this. don't center safety in the platform design. They don't center safety in the product development. Like, it can be done. It should be done, and it needs to be done. It would be done if they removed Section 230. Yeah, so like that, if you now get, we get if you to, didn't get in a macro environment, if they had the same liability that the three of you responsibility. do, then you better believe they would figure this yeah. out, Becky, I like that. So. What about the idea that they have a self-interest in making sure that the environment is safe for their advertisers? I mean, there's this, this idea out there that, oh, they don't want that toxic content on there themselves. You know, it's funny, Mike. So I'm someone who came from the industry. I believe in self-regulation. But what we've seen is that they think, for example, like subscription models. I think we're seeing this at X, mm -hmm. that by offering a variety of subscription products, it sort of hedges against the need to drive advertiser dollars. And that's a way to make sure that we can drive the revenue we need without relying, you know, on the whims of <laughs> Madison Avenue. But as somebody just pointed out online, it's hard to knock the Nazis off the platform when they're paying $8 a month. That's the thing. So again, we get back to subscriptions seem to obviate the need to focus on the safety of users and the needs of Madison Avenue. I think that's just got to change. Jonathan, I want to thank you for coming in this morning. It's nice Thanks to see for you. It's me. fascinating. Fascinating. Um, fascinating grades. Do you think it's going to change anything? I mean, do you think that the companies look at the grades in the same way? By the way, there's restaurants I won't go into if yeah. it has the D rating on it. Yeah. But I don't know if that's the case in social media. I don't land. know. Social I think media some people are more attractive to even. By the way, you might give them an F. They may say, that's where I want to be. I, that's why I thought Mike was going with his question. Yeah, yeah. Like, if it bleeds, it leads. Look, we're seeing the number of interactions and impressions on Twitter go up despite all the madness, you know? So, but look, at the end of the day, I think what Becky said is right. We need some regulatory pressure here. We finally need government to step in. And again, just hold the companies liable yeah. if they allow libel. It's really simple. They'll fix it if that's the case. Yeah, it's not as complicated as the companies make it out to be. That does it for Squawk Pod today. As always, thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.